Got to make sure I get all wired up here, unhooked there and hooked up here and feel like I'm in, at the ER. Um, let me invite you. Um, I probably say that all the time, huh? Let me invite you. Would you please uh, take the treasure of Scripture and would you open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, uh, verses 26 through 38. That's the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. And if you would bow your head once more with me and let's ask the Lord to assist us. Great Almighty God, we pause before you and ask you to settle our hearts. In a very busy, very conflicted, chaotic world in which we live, where we are busy, our minds take us in a thousand different directions and our worries and anxieties abound. We ask, O oh Lord, that in this moment that we have this space of time that we have uh, reserved out of our day to come and gather before you as a family of believers, um, we ask that you would settle our hearts in the simple truth that you are God and we are not. Um, settle our hearts with the truth that you are the sovereign king over all things and though we do not see the great shalom with our own eyes right now, we know that it is coming into being. And we know that one day, Lord, you will um, resolve and make all things right. You will bring every injustice to justice. And you will um, allow your glorious presence to cover this earth as the water covers the sea. We beg of you, uh, Almighty God, that you would make alive our faith if it's not that you would open our eyes ever wider to the glory of, of your great work, of your great name, of what you've done for us in, in Jesus, that ought to cause us to sing with joy and sing with passion and conviction because you've done so much for us. You have taken those who were fundamentally depraved and you have opened our eyes and you have set us in Christ at your right hand. We were once excluded, we were once strangers to you, and you're the one who reached out and brought us home, and that's, that's grace that calls forth worship and surrender. Father, as we open this word today, I, I ask that you speak. I ask that you um, give me the capacity to teach. Um, use my gift for the sake of your body, and I pray I would do so with humility and faith. So speak to us now, Lord, as we, um, as we contemplate what was written many years ago for our, for our good. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin this particular message on a bit more of an apologetic note. And by apologetic, I don't mean I'm going to say I'm, say I'm sorry, except for the feedback. Um, Rather, what I mean is uh, when we talk about apologetics in the church or in um, education, we're talking about a defense of the faith. And, um, and, and the reason I want to enter this particular text with a, a bit of an apologetic note um, is because, well, two things. One is that we live in, a, in, a, in an age dominated by, by the authority of science. 
Um, and the, the, the other is that we live in that age and we oftentimes listen to the voices of the world speak to us. And the other reason is that the text that we're going to look at this morning is one of those texts that is, how do, how do I say this without, like if you take this out of context, you're going to think I'm a heretic. But sounds completely and utterly absurd. For some reason I keep um, blipping. Oh. All right, well, it's okay. If, if, if for some reason you can't get it um, to go on, let me know, and I'll, uh, I'll proceed. Just give me a thumbs-up sign or something. Or not, maybe thumbs-down, that's the better sign. Um, we're just going to work with it. But um, the, the other is that this particular text is, 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 is to the person who has a scientific mind um, is utterly absurd. It's ridiculous. It's, it's outlandish. Um, you and I have probably both come across people who will say, I don't believe in God. But I do believe in science. I've heard that. I heard it just a few weeks ago. It kind of reminds me of that, that stupid line from that Oscar-winning movie, Nacho Libre, you know, where he's like, you know, I only believe in the science, you know. And uh, there are people who think that way, that I, they only believe in the science. You know what? Just turn it off. We'll just, we'll just, we're just going to go without it. Because you know what? I, I actually have a copy of it up here, so I'll just, I'll just work with that, and we'll have to actually just use our Bibles. That's pretty cool. Um, where was I? Oh, I love technology. I'm not to leave, right? <laughs> I love it. Yeah, well, so the, the, the whole idea of I only believe in science, you just you stop and you, you really think that through. If that's, if that's what you only believe, then you're not left with a whole lot to believe. Because um, the whole realm of science, that is what you can actually test with, with um, repeatable methods, is, is relatively small and leaves out some of the best things in life. It's almost like saying, because as, as I and others have thought about it, the, the whole realm of, of science exploration and experimentation is just one realm of knowledge, right? It's like, by way of analogy, saying, well, I only believe in mathematics. and Whatever you can prove to me by the addition or subtraction or by calculus... Um, I'll believe that. It's like, well, there's, there's more to the world than math. There's actually literature and all kinds of stuff. We're like saying, I only believe in geometry. It's just one um, part of the whole realm of knowledge. And as I said, it leaves out some of those wonderful things that we as humans enjoy that, that can't be put into a test tube. Um, morality. And not in the generic and, and um, mechanical sense, but morality. Honor. Justice. None of those things you can put into a test tube. None of those things are subjectable to the scientific method. Beauty. Um, love. You, you just can't. You, it's, 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 it's not subject to scientific methodology. Love. What makes life worth living is love. You can't test that. God himself is, is you can't reduce him to a test. You just can't do it. Because he stands outside of time, outside of space, according to the scripture, he created all this stuff. And created it consistently enough, that is to be consistent enough in its patterns of moving and so forth, that we actually have a discipline called science. As we as, as believers, you know, can embrace the fact that, yes, we believe in science. But we don't have to say we believe only in science. We can say we believe in the God who created science. We believe in a God who is both natural, or should I say, a God who is over the natural, and also a God who is supernatural, both of those things. And it retains some of the most beautiful and wonderful things um, in, in life. But a, but a life that's given to only believing what can, science can prove is, is, is really reduced down to not very much. Because you can't, 
test love. Now, the reason I, I, I say all that is because, as I mentioned, when we come to this particular text of Luke, I'm going to borrow a phrase that someone just gave me a couple weeks ago. It almost seems, and, and let me just erase the seams, it's mythical in proportion. That is, it, in one sense, in the Gospel of Luke, we looked at the first four verses where he said, listen, I have carefully researched and I have gotten eyewitness accounts, and I am laying out a narrative, a story of what happened. He wants us to believe that what was written in this book really happened in history. It isn't myth. But it has that, the dimension, the vastness, like the bigness, the grandness of it, the supernaturalness of it, that, that, that just causes uh, the mind that is scientifically um, uh, enslaved. Um, to say this is ridiculous. This is absurd. This is outrageous that you would believe this kind of stuff. Well, as I said, um, let's read the text. And forget that you've heard it a thousand times at Christmas, okay? Pretend you just heard it for the very first time with your whole our scientific age. Beginning in verse 26... Actually, reading our Bibles here in real print. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent. This is now the second time he's been sent. First to Jerusalem, six months earlier, and now six months later to Nazareth. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, this is the vastness of this. You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which if you remember means Yahweh saves he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore... The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. It's like, can you believe that? In her 80s or whatever, however old she was. She has a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Context. These two stories of chapter 1 kind of run parallel to each other. Two announcements of two different births. The first one, an angel comes to Jerusalem and announces to Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And that son is John the Baptist, will be John the Baptist. And then the story tells us his response. He didn't believe and went deaf and mute as a result for a, for a season. 
Story number two. Same angel comes to a different place in the land of Israel, only this time not to a man but to a young woman, a virgin, and delivers to her a message that is utterly outrageous. But her response, unlike Zacharias, he disbelieved. The text clearly indicates or gives us a sense that she believed. So one disbelieved, the other believed. That contrast is intentional. The focus of this second story, the story of the announcement of Jesus' birth, is intended to focus us on who Jesus is and Mary's response to this outrageous message. Now, I have, I have called it um, this an, an impossible message. And I want to look at those two things. Um, first, just the impossible message itself. And I put in quotes. You can't see that because screens don't work. But the impossible message. I don't want anybody to say, Dan doesn't believe this message. But just consider the impossible nature of this. One, the impossibility of a virgin birth. Impossibility of a virgin birth. Like everybody knows, virgins can't conceive. Uh, Mary herself has, a, has, an, has an issue with this. And she knows by way of experience you know, that, that, that you can't have a baby unless you're with a man. And I won't say anything more about that. But, you know, the relationship. She asks, how will this be since I'm a virgin? This just doesn't work. You know, there, in, the, in, the, in the history of the Bible, there are elderly ladies who do have, um, have babies. At least two that I know of. Sarah, Abraham's wife, and, of course, Elizabeth. So if someone said, hey, man, this lady's pregnant and she's in her 70s or 80s, I think all of us would go, what? But it's not, like, preposterous. At least out of the ball field park as far as I'm concerned um, but a virgin conceiving like that has never that never happened in the, in the in the history of our planet it's just it's physiologically impossible you have to have a man right and for those of you doubters who might say well you know we have fertility clinics right you don't need a man it's like no there's 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 a piece of a male there somewhere in that you know you, you don't you don't you don't have babies without that um, physically impossible we know that so I said, it's, 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 a, it's an impossibility. What, 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 it defies our scientific um, age that a virgin would actually conceive. That's her objection. It's like, how are we going to deal with this? Now, it's interesting, you know, that the, the early church considered the virgin birth of Jesus so important that they grafted it into their oldest creeds. Did you know that? The oldest creed that we know of is the old Roman creed. This was long before there was ever a Roman Catholic church. That didn't come till later. Uh, old Roman creed, and part of it that they would recite because they didn't have Bibles, at least none of the poor people had Bibles, is they, would, they said, we believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Like it was that important to them to believe this outrageous truth, this supernatural truth. Did you ever stop to ask why? Uh, maybe you have. Because of what it not only implies, but if you go on in the, the little message of, the, of, the, of, of Gabriel, you realize he's telling us about Jesus' identity. Which brings us to probably one of the most difficult impossibility uh, truths to believe in terms of human logic and philosophy and understanding, that is the impossibility of divine human union. The impossibility of divine human union. When, when, when Mary objects and she goes, wait a second, how does this work? I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a virgin. Um, 
No, it doesn't happen. Physically, that's impossible. That's, like, that's outside of nature. Um, he responds to her, and this is verse 35, okay? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, and this is the implication, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The Spirit will come upon you. That is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1. When uh, the text tells us the Spirit of the living God, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep and said, let there be light. And then in those chapters, life comes out of darkness. Through the scripture, you have the work of the Spirit as the giver of life. When he comes onto a dead heart, a faithless heart, you know, he moves upon the, the heart moves upon the darkness, moves upon the face of the deep and says, let there be light, and people are born again. So here, the same idea is that, you know, what's going to happen is the power of the Most High is going to overshadow you, not in some kind of a freakish sexy sex way, but just the power of God who speaks truth will generate life in your womb, meaning there will be no biological father of Jesus. There will be a biological mother, but no biological father And the reason for that is that Jesus is related not to a human biological father, but he is related um, by nature to his father, which is why he says at the end, therefore, the child to be born will be called holy as a word for God, like that is applied to God, holy, that's perfect. And the last statement there, verse 35, the son of God. Son of man, or son of Mary, if you will, son of God. What, 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 what is described here, as I said, is, is preposterous to the scientific mind. We're talking about two different origins. I hesitate to use the word origin when it comes to the divinity of Christ because it implies a beginning. Perhaps better to say two different natures. Um, that in the person of Christ, the, the, the angel is telling us, um, heaven and earth would be united into one man. Uh, son of man, son of God, united into one person. The fullness of humanity and the fullness of divinity united into one person. Now, do I understand how that works? Absolutely, 100% not. How is it, when you think about it, that a person like Jesus can take on full humanity with all of its limitations, physical and emotional limitations, we as humans are, are finite. We're, we're created. Jesus became human. So he was in some ways restricted to, to human limitations. At the same time, simultaneously, to have the full range of divine freedoms of what it means to be God. To not know everything and know everything. How does that work? I don't know. Now some might say, that's a cop-out, Dan. It's just a cop-out. You say you don't know, right? There's a lot of stuff I don't know. I think, you know, there's just have to be honest with the stuff we don't know because, you know, a lot of other people aren't. If you flip the tables on somebody who believes only in science, you know, and you ask them questions about, well, okay, let's just stop for a second. You, you, you can't believe that Jesus can be both God and man at the same time, which is really hard to understand. Uh, but you still can't explain, like, what holds the universe together? What's with that? It's like, well, we don't know. Well, we're, we're theorizing about these dark possibilities and so forth. So bottom line is you have a cop-out, right? Everybody's got a cop-out. Bottom line is this is how he's introduced. How? I don't know. But 
I will tell you that this particular event is not just a New Testament phenomenon. Seven centuries before, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, predicted the day in which a virgin would conceive, and they would give, he would have the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Hmm. Virgin, a person, human, has a baby that is God with us. That's seven centuries before Jesus ever arrived or, or the angel Gabriel ever made his little announcement. You also have this, again, juxtaposition or the, the two things. That, For unto us a child is born. Just a couple chapters later, I think talking about the same person, Isaiah 9. Uh, unto us a child is born, human. And yet he's going to be called Almighty God, Everlasting Father. How does that compute? I don't know. But what we can compute is why that's absolutely necessary for our salvation. Jesus had to be human if he was going to pay our price as our substitute. Listen, there's no camel, no platypus, and no Labrador that can take your sin. Only someone of like kind, a perfect someone, can take your place. Human Jesus came to pay for human sin. If he wasn't human... We're still hosed. Get it? There's no payment. There's no substitute. It's, it's, there's no salvation. There's no final payment because he had to be human to take a human's place. So he, he had to be human to, to, to pay for our sin. Um, his humanity is also one of those things that expresses in its fullest extent um, the, 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 the revelation of who God is. That is, who God... Um, is in his essence. The people we know the best, let me just back up and say this differently. You can't get deeply involved in an intimate way with a rose bush or a cat. And I'm sorry, cat lovers, but as much as you love your cats, there's no communion with your cat on any deep level, all right? You have just levels of whatever you want to call it. But a human-to-human um, contact, self-expression, self-disclosure. And God took the, the per- most perfect form to reveal himself. Like, this is who I am, and I'm going to come in the perfect form, which is I'm going to come in humanity. I'm going to be the word made flesh. So, you know, if he's not human, where, where's that full sense of God's self-revelation? On the other hand, if Jesus isn't God, well, there's no way he could have actually satisfied the debt we owed for millions of people and come back from the dead. It's, 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 it's his divinity that allowed the person of Jesus to take upon himself the sin of the world and yet rise three days later. If he wasn't God, he wouldn't have risen from the dead. He had to be God to rise from the dead. He has to be God if he, we are to believe that he is sovereign over the nations and will bring all things to fruition and judge the living and the dead. Like He doesn't do any of those things if he's not God because those are divine prerogatives. It means that, again, human God Jesus, that we can trust him. If he simply was a human, maybe d- divinely inspired or something, then we we really couldn't trust for sure that he was going to bring every injustice to justice and that he was going to turn this decaying creation around and make it all new. God meant both necessary. And that's that's what he's saying here, right? But again, I I just want to say this is kind of, to the scientific mind, it's preposterous. How can it be? Then you add to that one final impossibility in this message. 
and there's a reason why I'm framing it this way, uh, is that kind of one of the pieces of the message in verse 33 says, he, that is this son of God, son of man, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That too defies all human experience and experimentation. You're talking about one guy who is going to be king, and his kingdom will last forever and ever and ever and ever. No more elections, no Republicans and Democrats, um, no more strife, no more ISIS. It's all, all done, and he's going to reign in this kingdom forever and ever and ever and ever die. Again, an impossible message from our naturalistic frame of reference. No, kingdoms come, kingdoms go. Presidents come, presidents go. There's no such thing as eternal kingdom. So again, this is outrageous. It's outrageous. So those kind of three, if you will, impossible pieces to this message. A virgin birth? Really? Um, A divine union into one person, Jesus, the God and man joined together eternally. Um, the impossibility of an eternal kingdom and king, preposterous. Now, what's, the, what's my point in this? Well, the main, main, main point of this in Luke's um, writing is that so we understand from the beginning who Jesus really is. This is who he is from the very beginning. Angelic introduction, prophetic introduction by I- Isaiah. Um, this, is, this, is, this is God come to earth pay for sin as a human who is also divine. In one sense, that's it. But I framed it in a particular way because I want us to understand something very clearly. And, and this is something that I, I need to understand. And more importantly, I need to believe. That belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ, belief in the Bible, requires us, demands us, To believe in the supernatural. It demands that we believe that God not only is supernatural, but he is supernaturally broken into this world to love us and save us. The whole thing is supernatural. The the birth of Jesus, or should I say the virgin birth of Jesus, I mean him taking all sin upon himself, that uh, that is not natural. Resurrection from the dead, supernatural. Prophecy, supernatural. New creation, supernatural. Creation itself, supernatural. From beginning to end, we, we have to believe the gospel is about believing that God does supernatural things to save us. And the reason that's important, like I said, we tend to live in an age in which, which God has been squeezed out. And oftentimes, without even consciously knowing it, we, we allow him to be squeezed out too. As if he's not God over nature and God over supernatural as well. And the interesting thing is, and this is the second part, is Mary's response. Okay? Outrageous message. And impossible message. And to many in our world, an absurd message. And yet, and Mary wasn't stupid. And she knows that a virgin doesn't conceive Right? She knows that. Anybody with a brain knows that. But what's her response? Verse 38. This is, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me 
according to your word. In other words, let it be fulfilled. I don't know what would have happened if she said, no, not me. But her heart actually believed in the truthfulness of this impossible message. Her heart believed in the truthfulness of this impossible message. And that is an example for us. I think in two ways. And these are the faith lessons that I want to draw out from what we just said. One, I already implied. And that is, this has to do with our faith. To say yes to the gospel. I could say, to say yes to the Bible. Yes to Christianity. Yes to redemption. Yes to salvation. Yes to a future new creation. To say yes to the gospel is to say yes to the supernatural. To say yes to the gospel is to say yes to the supernatural. Our faith demands that we believe that God broke through nature and caused a virgin to conceive. Um, Our faith demands that we believe that God and man came into one person, the person of Jesus Christ, to pay for our sin. The gospel demands that we believe that God does a supernatural thing in the human heart to bring it to life and believe. We have to believe in this supernatural gospel that promises to renovate and restore all things. It demands it of us. And yet, it's so easy to lose that sense in our faith that our God is a supernatural God. That He heals the the, the sick. Um, That He really does speak. That he, He will raise the dead. He will bring our family members who have believed back to us and us to them. All of this demands we believe not only that God works through nature by way of providence, and that's what I'm saying is not to deny that God doesn't work through the ordinary things he's already set in place. That's called providence. The reason your heart beats ultimately is not because of physics. It's because God sustains the physics in a way that keeps your heart beating. But those are the ordinary workings of God. But the Bible is also full of the extraordinary and supernatural working of God. And to believe in our hearts that God does break in. To know that in our prayer life, to know that in our confidence and our courage that God breaks in. He has broken in and he may break in again. He certainly will in the end. I was, uh, I was, when I was thinking about, like, what is that belief? Like, we don't just say we believe in God. We believe in a God of the supernatural. What does that do to you? And one of the stories that came to my mind was a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of Daniel chapter 3. I'm not going to tell you the whole story, because you can go back and read it. One of the most fascinating stories in the Old Testament. But there are, there's three young Jewish men who are, who are told they must bow down and worship in the image of an emperor. And they, knowing the Jewish law and knowing that they have one God, they bow to no one else but Yahweh. They said, no. And this emperor came to them and said, listen, if you, if you don't bow down, then I am going to throw you into a furnace heated like six to ten times. I don't remember the exact number. Now, the physics of that is pretty simple. You throw humans into a furnace, what happens? They burn. Simple physics, right? 
But their response to the king tells me that they believed in a God of the supernatural, and yet they were willing to accept or um, embrace whatever outcome. This is Daniel 3, verse 16 through 18. Just listen. Hear that their confidence in the supernatural power of God. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, that's the king, uh, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. Let me just rewind and restate that, okay? Our God, the supernatural God, the God Yahweh, who, 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 who punished the Egyptians and brought hail and all of these things and turned the Nile to, to blood and he opened up the waters and brought us through on dry land and caused the sun to stop in the sky, by the way. It's like, our God, Yahweh, whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, burning fiery furnace. He's able to stop physics. He's able to breach what he set in place in terms of nature and deliver us. Now that's confidence. And something every one of us needs. I need. That the God that we worship, who walks with us, is not just a God who works in and through nature. He is a God who is supernatural and can trump nature whenever he wishes. He does not, he is not, not relegated to human finances or politics. He does not bow to the diagnosis of an oncologist. But if not, that is if he decides not to, because our faith always demands us to allow God to be on the throne and make the final decision. Um, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's confidence in the supernatural power of God. Do you have that? Like if, if God was to come to you and you were in Mary's position, and he gives you this outrageous message, would you be like, whatever? And that was Zachariah's response, right? Hey, your old, old wife, let me say that. I'm not saying that of any of you, but your old wife's going to conceive. He's like, what? <laughs> this doesn't happen. And here Mary just said, I believe it. I, I, I hope and pray that God um, reinforces in our heart the confidence in a supernatural, powerful, almighty God that can at any moment suspend what he set in place and do it whatever he wishes for the good of his people and the glory of his name. So a little amen on that? And the second faith lesson, and this is more just a reflection on her decision, her surrender, and then how it plays out in her life. Because what she says yes to at this point, when she says, you know, um, let it be to me, verse 38 um, is going to take her down a very painful road. And, and it's, I believe it's consistent with the, the teachings of Jesus on discipleship and what happens when we say yes to him. That is to say yes to the gospel is to say yes to fruitful suffering. To say yes to the gospel, I believe, and I'm willing to submit myself to the truth, however outrageous it seems to some, um, is to say yes to f- fruitful suffering. She was probably, well, I, I'd, I'd get, venture to say she was ignorant when she said yes. Um, there's, a, there's a blessedness to ignorance, right? You don't know what's coming, and if you did know what's coming, you might say something different. And God blesses us with ignorance, so we say, <laughs> some people say yes at the altar to their wife and realize, wow, if I'd have known this, I wouldn't have got married. But 
you know, God blessed you with ignorance, you know, and so now you're married and, you know, um, well, you know, her, her, her surrender to the will of Yahweh and saying, let it be to me according to your word would lead her to giving birth in an animal pen. Um, it would cause her and her young husband to flee for their lives in the midst of a massacre. They would live as refugees down in Egypt. Um, fast forward in life, uh, Mary would watch her son slandered, would watch her son conspired upon, misunderstood, hostily beaten, and worse, upon worse, watch her firstborn boy crucified. Hard road. All that to say, when you say yes to the Lord, it doesn't mean he's going to lead you through a path of daisies. In fact, um, depending on how we understand Jesus' call to discipleship, sure seems to me that it leads to a lot of cross-bearing. But that cross-bearing in the life of Mary, who said yes to the gospel, who said yes to the Lord, um, would bear much fruit. She would nurture the young boy Jesus, and she would mother him. She would invest in him. She would teach him the scripture. Remember what I said about him being fully human? He had to develop just like us as humans. He had to learn language, and he had to learn the Bible just like us because he's fully human. Like I said, I don't know how all that fits together, but that's what it means to be human. And she invested her life in the one who would save us. That's fruitful suffering. And at the end of the day, she would have the joy of knowing resurrection life. At the end of, of a dark road, I shouldn't, maybe dark road, maybe a difficult road is a better way to say it. When you say yes to the Lord and you're willing to submit and surrender your life to him, it will lead you down a road that will cost you something. Jesus said, you know, count the cost. A man does not go to war unless he counts the cost. It's like it's going to cost you something. But at the end of the day, it's worth it. It's worth it because we serve the one who is king and will reign forever and ever and ever. No more politics, right? Now, if you're a person who's find yourself in a, in a difficult season of life, um, you need to recognize you're certainly not the first, not the only one. To truly submit your life to the Lord means you're gonna, you are going to face pains. But in the same way that God empowered her, stood by her, provided for her, sustained her, and gave her what she needed to be the mother of, of the Son of God, um, he is with you as well. And, um, and at the end of the day, as I said, we always look forward to the hope and the joy of the resurrection. That's what we're living for. I pray that this, um, your heart has been in, edified with the grandness of Christ, but also... Um, the supernatural power of God and that he would fill our hearts with confidence in who he is and we'd have the capacity to believe it and live it. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for sending your son. We're thankful that you are the God of the supernatural. You're the God of the impossible. And it's in that very truth, Lord, we find our, our sense of confidence and our sense of hope. We ask, Lord, that you would, just by a work of your grace, please um, reinforce our faith, reinforce our belief in a, a time and a culture and a society that is um, decidedly anti-supernatural. Help us as your people to walk in that light and that truth and give our lives completely and fully to the one who is both God and man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us.
In Christ's name, amen.